Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So we take for granted, I think, the idea of a band, a rock and roll band, right? Uh, We've grown up listening to rock and roll bands, and we also kind of know that they may not stay together. The ones that stay together, at least in the early halcyon days of rock and roll, it was a hard thing to do. Uh, It's going to be argued on the show today that it's a little easier to do these days, or maybe people are learning from bad examples. But it's still an interesting question. What is it about the dynamics of a band that make it either cohesive or likely to rupture? Uh, And that's the magical question, the $64 million question we're going to explore today with experts and musicians and anybody else we can find after the news. show is about the whole question of why certain bands break up, why some bands stay together. Of course, the bands that stay together are kind of in the minority. I mean, there's sort of a second law of thermodynamics at work here, right? It just doesn't really make sense that you could keep four or five people together, spending more time together really than I think most married couples do, plus driving long distances, flying long distances, people with artistic temperaments, you know, just it's kind of amazing that any bands are still together after more than six months, but they are. Uh, and sometimes they aren't. And here to get us started uh, with that, I should tell you, uh, in our second segment today, we are going to talk, have a roundtable of three uh, musicians who've been in bunches of bands or in different versions of the same band. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about this question. We'll also talk to a psychotherapist who specializes in in giving therapy to bands uh, around these very questions. But right now, we're going to talk to Stephen Hyden, the cultural critic at Up Rocks and the author of several books on rock music. Most recently, Long Road, Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. He also co-hosts the weekly indie rock podcast, IndieCast. So first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. And I don't know. I mean, you sort of hate to begin on such an obvious note, but there is a kind of weird double template here, right? The two bands that were just seminal in their time and whose work has endured across decades, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but with very different trajectories in terms of togetherness. So talk a little bit about how you see that particular dichotomy. Well, in the intro to my book, I I write about how I'm really interested in the topic you're talking about in your show, just how do bands operate and why do some bands go to the distance and why do some bands fall apart after a relatively uh, brief amount of time. And I I think the Beatles and Stones just work as 
very handy templates for on one hand the Beatles being really the most famous breakup in rock history and a lot of the cliches that we associate with breakups derive from the Beatles you know whether it's someone gets married and that takes them away from the band and that's why it splits up or maybe you have like a secondary songwriter in the band who like wants to get his songs on the record the george harrison figure and that leads to dissension uh like the money problems the conniving manager who comes in and separates the loyalties all that you could find in the beatles story and then on the other hand you have a band like the rolling stones who have you know famously been together for over 60 years and a lot of the cliches about the long-running rock band that never breaks up you can find in the, in the Stone story where the, the Mick and Keith figures that exist in every band that have to figure out a way to coexist because they, at the end of the day, know what their role is. And that's the way that they're able to stay together, as well as just bringing in auxiliary members when people die or you know they, they drown or there's like a drug overdose or something. You could see that in the Stone story too. So it is almost like Greek mythology in a way, like how people still refer to the myths you know to understand the modern world in rock music the beatles and stones are like the biggest myths and i think there's still a lot of truth that we can take from their examples it's interesting when you go from there to you too because in a way there's sort of these mick and keith figures you know i mean it's bono and the edge in a way i don't know musically sometimes they seem a little bit more to me like the beatles but they've done that stones thing right they have stayed together a super long time yeah and uh you too is especially unique because it's the same four people you know you don't really see that very often someone ends up quitting along the way there might be some tragic mishap that that takes out a band member but you know you two uh radiohead is another example of a band that's that's hung around with the same membership rush was another band well actually the original drummer was not neil pert so that they don't count i mean there's very few examples of a band like U2 or Radiohead, where it's the same people for the entire run of the band. You know, in some cases, it seems as though there's an almost performative nature to the rancor. I'm thinking in particular, I think of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Young, where there's, you know, there's just like, first of all, you can't very easily replace members of a band if their names are the names of the band. Um, right. So that's hard to do. But there's sort of a way in which, you know, they, they didn't get along or somebody else, one person, didn't, or Stills is driving everybody crazy or Young doesn't like anybody or Crosby's impossible. But they also keep getting back together again in different formations. And I, first of all, I wonder about that. And I wonder how much you, some of that must be driven by actual money, right? You're worth a lot more as Crosby, Stills, and Nash than you are in lesser configurations. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the thing you said earlier about how if your name is in the name of the band, that it it's hard to fire that person because you, you lose, you know, the brand. And David Crosby actually said that that was part of the motivation for, like, why he wanted all the names in the band. Because, you know, he had been in other groups where he had been fired. I mean, he was in the Birds, or you know, famously, and he got fired from that band and they just continued on without him. So in, uh, you know, like a CSN or CSNY situation, if you don't have the C, it's very hard to sell the public on this being the proper band. But yeah, I mean, certainly there is the matter of money that bands, if they're around for long enough, they become brands. And if you're touring as a solo act versus being in this very successful group, you're not going to make as much money. You're not going to be able to draw as many people to your shows. I think 
and maybe I'm being romantic here, I there is also the matter of just pure old-fashioned musical chemistry. I mean, if you're in one of the greatest bands of all time, the bands that we all want to see when they do the reunion tour, that's not something that can be replicated. You know, Paul McCartney had success with Wings, but no one mistakes Wings for the Beatles. <laughs> you know, as great as Paul McCartney is, he was not as good as he was in that band. So there's always, I think, going to be an allure there, even if you can't stand the other people in the band. Sometimes that's completely divorced from whatever kind of musical alchemy might exist uh, in that kind of relationship. Right. I haven't interviewed as many of these people as you have, but I did interview Graham Nash one time and I asked him, I said, what was it like the first time the three of you, Crosby and Stills and him, sang together? Because they had this kind of really kind of unusual harmony blend. And he said, oh, no, we knew it was magic right then. You know, just the way the, the voices came together was, and when you think about it, there's a lot of groups that came along afterwards that tried to sound like that and they never did because there's just something very special about those three voices. But there's also just these people have really, really big personalities. And, uh, you know, if you watch Get Back Now and you can sort of feel these big personalities rubbing against one another, you know, it, it does, does feel like a, a very, very long documentary about a band that's about to break up, right? Well, yeah. It, I mean, the thing I take from Get Back is that the Beatles were back in the studio making a new record about six weeks after the White Album came out. Mm -hmm. You know, White Album comes out in November of 68. They're in Twickenham Studios, like early January of 69. And it really does highlight something that used to just be typical operating procedure for people in the music business that you would, you know, put out two albums a year. You were also putting out singles that weren't included on albums. It was just a very sort of torturous release schedule. And my takeaway from Get Back is that they actually get along better than you had been told before that. You know, like there's lots of moments in that movie like where they're enjoying each other's company. They're, there's really cool moments that are coming together, you know, live that we can see on screen. And it just makes you feel like how great would it have been if they could have just taken a year off, you know, and done a solo record or, you know, John could go do give Peace a Chance with Yoko in a hotel room and get that out of a system and then they come back in 1970 or 71 and make a record that's something that actually you see a lot of long-running bands now i think they've learned from that example that a band like radiohead or, or pearl jam as they get older they don't tour as often they're not making as many albums they're doing a lot more side projects they're having kids they're living lives outside of the band and it, it just seems like on some level, they learn from these older bands that burned out, you know, that we don't have to break up. We can just like take a hiatus and do our own thing and then always come back to this mothership. I don't know, because I, I just feel like bands don't break up as much now. Yeah. You know, I, I think they've realized we don't have to do the big announcement. We could just take a break. I mean, like Radiohead hasn't toured in five years. They haven't made an album in seven years, but they're not broken up. They might very well do something this year for all we know. R.E.M. is like the last kind of big band that I remember actually putting out a statement saying we're done. But that's just not something you really see anymore, I don't think. You know, an another thing about this, though, and, and you kind of are alluding it to, to it in your, your last set of answers, is 
when people are first in very successful bands, they tend to be very young. And, uh, you know, I was listening to Bono be interviewed somewhere, and he was talking about talking, having a conversation with Sir Paul, and the whole breakup came up, and Paul said, you know, it wasn't just Sir John, you know, I could be a bit overbearing. And I'm thinking, well, you have that insight now, right? <laughs> that you can be overbearing. But most of the things that are happening to you are happening to you when you're much younger, and you don't have a lot of perspective on yourself. And I assume that's a lot of the stress and strain on bands, too. These are young people not just crawling with, with insights about themselves. Yeah, and, and it's also just part of the inertia of, of being alive. Like, like most of us are not friends with people that we knew as teenagers. I mean, you might have a friend or two like that, but even if you've maintained that friendship, like you're not working with them in like a business that you started together, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's a pretty unique thing. And I think also having your younger self constantly projected onto you, that's gotta also be weird, you know, because you bring up the U2 example, you know, when people go see U2, they expect to hear songs that they recorded 35, 40 years ago like who among us is still expected to replicate things that we did like when we were much younger than we are now uh it's an unnatural uh thing i mean as audience members we in a way are self-deluding ourselves in a lot of ways about what we're going to see when we go to see one of these bands like we are projecting our imaginations in a way on these musicians who like are in many ways not the same people that they were when they first started doing this thing. It's, I think, a really unique band that can find a way to grow with their audience where they can be who they are at the age that they are now and not just a stand-in for who they used to be. I mean, that's a very hard thing to pull off. You know, I'm not supposed to ask you any more questions because we're out of time, but I feel like there's one thing that I I do want to just very, very briefly touch on, which is, you know, we're talking about white musicians right now, and that's kind of interesting, too. And there's this sort of mythology that attaches itself to these kinds of bands, that the band is really important. The four members or the five members of the band are, are really somehow are the, this kind of defining feature uh, of the band. How are they going to get along together? And then you get movies like Almost Famous or even, for that matter, This is Spinal Tap, you know, which is sort of – but, you know, you look at Barry Gordy, and Barry Gordy, I think, had a somewhat different vision of how to do this, which is you have really, really great songwriting. You have really great frontline acts. Then you've got basically this really, really talented, highly adaptable house band group of studio musicians. We saw them in the documentary, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. And then if David Ruffin wants to leave The Temptations or something, I mean, it's a problem. You don't want to lose him. But it's not a fatal problem anymore because the name, the music, the style, the songwriting, it's all there whether one or two people leave or not. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that bands or groups in general now are not really a part of like the modern musical landscape and i think there's a lot of reasons for that i mean like when i was growing up you know there were groups in all types of music you know like like in hip-hop it was the glory days of like run dmc nwa uh public enemy a tribe called quest you know the wu-tang clan you know it was always about groups of people coming together and and different kinds of personalities i mean you, you were talking about the motown era and it's true that you know they had this machinery in place that uh was feeding uh songs and also playing the music in the background 
But, you know, the Supremes were one of the most popular groups of that time. The Four Tops, the Jackson Five. You mentioned the Temptations. And, yeah, there were people that came in and out. But, like, the, they were still, there was still, like, a group identity to what they were doing. And, honestly, I think that a big reason why it's not as big of a deal now is that it's just easier to market a solo artist. It's easier to manage them, you know? Like, if you have someone like Harry Styles, for instance, easier just to focus on him than like all of One Direction. You know, it's easier to focus on Beyonce than all of Destiny's Child. It's easier to focus on Justin Timberlake instead of all of NSYNC. There's just something about that where I think there's a cult of personality now mm. with pop stars where people want to associate more with a single person than with a band. And you know, there's positives and negatives to that. I do, again, personally find the dynamics of people working together in a public forum to just be a fascinating dynamic. I think there's something that's special about people who have known each other for a long time and are collaborating as equals, who are able to come together and make something that they couldn't do on their own. Yeah, I think that's always going to be something special that you can't replicate if you just have studio musicians in a studio and you have paid songwriters not to say that you can't have great music that comes from that but it's just something different than what comes out of a band identity I absolutely agree Stephen Hyden uh, cultural critic at Up Rocks uh, and the author of several books on rock music most recently Long Road Pearl Jam and the soundtrack of a generation also co-host the weekly indie rock podcast Indie Cast thanks for being with me today great thanks for having me in the next segment, we're going to talk to some actual musicians who are in bands and have been in bands. I know at least two of them. They've already trashed the green room, but we'll talk to them when we come back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Thank you. 
I'm laughing because I have a lot of memories associated with that song. Also laughing at how it's great. Dave Howard, is that his name? His drum, drumming in this is so great. Anyway, okay, so this part of the show is actually my idea, and now I'm nervous about it because uh, it could completely come unraveled, uh, but I don't think so. So the band that you just heard uh, was the Neils, is the Neils, uh, and uh, that is got to get over Greta from quite a few decades ago at this point. Uh, Narissa Neils is with us, a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and founding member of the Neils, a group that has lasted in various incarnations for more than 30 years. She's part of this three-person panel that we're putting together, all of musicians, to kind of share their insights and ideas. Also with us, Jay Russell, singer, songwriter, and guitarist from Connecticut, whose current band is The Split Coils, his former band, Hot Rod Circuit, toured nationally in the early 2000s alongside acts like Dashboard Confessional and Jimmy Eat World. And also with us, Jim Chapdelaine, guitarist, uh, producer, Emmy Award-winning composer, Recording engineer, adjunct professor at the University of Hartford School of Music, and so much more. Uh, he plays in several Jeez. bands. So much more. He plays in several bands, including his own group, the Shinolas. And I just want to say, you know, we didn't talk about it in the first segment, but there's that like famous instant. I think it was 1980, where the, <laughs> the Eagles are on stage. I think it was actually a benefit concert, which makes it even better. Uh, and Glenn Fry and Don Felder have decided that they hate each other and they're going to try to kill each other at the end of the band. And like each one of them is going three more songs. MF, and then I'm going to beat the snot out of you. And I just want to say, Jim Chapdelaine invented that. He's done that with every single band he's ever been in. Uh, so that, you know, do something original, Eagles. Um, so, you know, it kind of it kind of keeps order. Yeah, exactly. You think about it. And, you know, it you, made, you, you keep it's tra- a structure people right. understand. You keep track of the set list better, too. Two more songs and then I'm going to kill you. you exactly. <laughs> you, you don't get lost that way. So I'm going to start with you, Jim, just because, you know, and I, I just texting you a little while ago about this. I mean. You know, you really have produced and, and done uh, a post-production and all kinds of stuff and, you know, have your own studio with so many different bands. And I'm just wondering if you develop kind of a sixth sense or a little ability as you watch the dynamics of bands coming in studio, uh, whether you can sort of tell who's, who's going to have some trouble lasting five years and, and who's going to, you know, be you two and go the distance. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I I do tell this story. I, I took a, a project one time to produce a, a band from a, a very hoity-toity school that you might be familiar with, um, <laughs> and uh, and and I was so fascinated. They all they were all like you know neurosurgeons and stuff, and I thought, wow, I'm going to learn a lot. And while they were loading in on the first day, after we talked about production and stuff, they broke up. Um, <laughs> and so I was able to patch that up. And we went on to do two records together. But I thought, like, the band, the, the convention of being in a band, is the it's so reductive that it reduces people to their lowest behavior as well as their highest. Um, but, but the idea that they broke up, like, in my stairwell <laughs> while bringing their stuff in, I thought that's it. That's everything you need to know about bands, right there. Well, I do. There I want to have to have one follow-up question. We actually are going to have kind of a, a musical, a, a band kind of therapist, uh, for one of a better term, uh, on at the end. But what did you say to them? To like, what did you remember? What you said to these yeah, people? Yeah, like, yeah, we all went out the driveway. And we, <laughs> you know, we talked and we talked. You know, my neighbors are watching. We put the weapons down. Yeah. Um, but it, I can't remember the specific conversation, but I'm still good friends with many of them today. It was just like they had this. There was so much pressure on this moment. And I think uh, your other guests um, 
might be familiar with that. I mean, when you suddenly have to do a big thing together. And I think bands know how to do stuff together. I've, I've been in bands that are short-lived. I've been in bands for 20 years now, uh, certain bands. Uh, and I think um, th- in your last segment, you talked a lot about bands being young people who are evolving. And that's a really important thing because I've asked around this week about this and the idea that when you're, when you have that explosive moment as a band, whether it's at the playing cover music at the local bar scene and you get a following or you're the Beatles or whatever is in between, um, you're young, uh, most likely. And, and then life happens to you. And that's really sort of the test right there. Can you go through life together? Right. You know. So, so Nerissa, first of all, Nerissa, Nerissa and I are both very familiar with that Hoity Toity University. Um, uh, and um, I should say that I think the biggest challenge to the Neils, probably in their 30 year history, was when some you know, weasel journalist who were writing a magazine piece about them showed up and started, you know, stirring up trouble in the band. No, actually, I, I sort of hung out with the band for quite some time uh, with the Neils trying to understand them. And and so, Nerissa, first of all, we should say something about the various versions of your band. It's always very much centered around family. You know, you, you guys make the cow sills look like strangers uh, to one another. So, so say a little bit more about that and the whole idea of weaving family and band together. Well, so the band's core is my sister Katrina and me, and we are two years apart in age and uh, fought like little, you know, little devils until we were about uh, 15 years old. I was 15. She was 13. And I suddenly went, what am I doing? This person is terrific. And she's a way better singer than me, by the way. So I think I should make friends with her and stop beating her up. Plus, she's also getting taller than me. So it was a wise move uh, for several reasons. <laughs> but we have we've been best friends. You know, we've been best friends our whole lives. And I, I think that the fact that we got all of our fighting, I mean, not that we don't fight anymore, but we don't really fight like that. We we stopped being mean to each other. We We figured it out when we were really young. And I don't we didn't set out to make music as a band for the rest of our lives. It was something we were going to do in our 20s and then we were going to move on to other things. <laughs> she was going to go to law school. I was going to write books and which, you know, like we've done different things, certainly. But right. I thought one of you was going to be an actress and one of you was going to learn to fly. But that might be a different song. So um, so, you know, I just want to just jump in here and say, OK, when I first came upon you as a journalist, you were a five member band. Um, uh, this was uh, at a time when you were still in your first marriage. Uh, the lead guitarist was your husband at that time. He had been obliged to change his last name to Niels. Uh, and and, you know, it, it seemed like a complex arrangement of human beings. And I think the thing I want to ask you about, and it'll lead naturally from you to Jay here, is the other thing that was happening was you guys were doing this very grueling form of touring. You had this kind of beat up van named Moby that you would drive just insane distances to sometimes play for not very big audiences before things had really clicked. And I just it just seemed like a very, very hard thing to subject a group of five people plus manager uh, to. Can you say a little bit about what touring does to you? I, I suppose it either makes you or breaks you as a, a collective. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I was too dumb to to dislike it. Like I I was having the time of my life. It was David Neal's my now ex-husband who was 7 years older than the rest of us and he was the one who said I can't do this anymore. And Katrina wanted to have a baby and uh also wanted to do more folk stuff and I just wanted to hang on to the whole thing. I just wanted to keep on going and I was willing to compromise in any way possible. You know, and I think that's probably the key to why we've survived for 30 years is because I'm just so desperate to keep making music and I don't want to do it by myself. Yeah, I, I want to circle back to that. But but Jay, uh, let's add you to this. Um, so yeah, you were, when you were doing Hot Rod Circuit, uh, you were touring nationally. Uh, and these are really long stints on the road, right? Nine, 10, 11 months, I'm assuming? Usually no more than, than 10 months. But yeah, I mean, it, it got out of, out of hand there. Hot Rod Circuit's still actively a touring band, and we actually still tour with these same bands as back in the day. We did a show with, with Dashboard last year. Um, and yeah, we're lucky to do that, but we are a band that actually broke up publicly and got back together. Um, but yeah, touring in, in the early two thousands, you know, we just had a don't say no attitude and, and essentially, um, put ourselves out there and, you know, it, it was a great time of my life. Touring today is a great time of my life. Is it okay to ask you why you broke up the first time? Sure. I had actually left the band uh, previously after our fourth record. Um, some personal things in my life. My dad had passed away. I was a, uh, what is it called? Raging alcoholic. That's it. Um, <laughs> so I just had a bunch of things going on. I also had met the love of my life. And, uh, you know, I'd always known I wanted a family. So all these things came to a head. And when my dad passed, I left the band to go home for the funeral. And I never returned on the road until maybe 10 years later, and I'm still in the band today. But um, to answer your question, uh, bands just can burn out. And, you know, the hiatus thing wasn't really a thing back then. We kind of wrote it till the wheels fell off. Those guys wrote it till the wheels fell off. And uh, when you have families and you're getting into your late 20s or 30s, um, you know, it just becomes a whole lot harder to maintain a touring lifestyle. Yeah, so Jim, you know, I want to once again call on your wisdom, both as a member of a band and somebody who's just worked with so many different bands. I mean, you know, there are like advices, sort of common forms of advice via Ann Landers or whoever about how to have a long-lasting marriage and stuff like, you know, never go to bed mad at each other or something. So I don't know. Are there things that you just sort of feel like you need to do if you're going to keep a band together? You know, there's, there, it, it, does it need to be a democracy? Does it need to be some other form of government? It's, what is your vast wisdom about all this? Well, I mean, if you really want to ensure longevity, everyone changes their last name to Neil yeah, first. Which, that's which we all did just to do this show uh, right. together. I should just point I, no, out all I did of us for did. This yeah, segment. yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, a democracy ideally is the thing that sustains itself. And obviously, creatively, that ball can be passed around to some guys. Some people will hit a stride. Some people will will lose things. There's stuff like Jay was talking about. You might see some people get, you know, uh, uh, fall off a wagon or, or or into something that they shouldn't. I mean, it's a it's a business that has a lot of stereotypes associated with it for a reason. 
But I think a lot of that is fallen by the wayside too. I think, um, you know, we've all grown up in the age of therapy and self-help and there's an aisle in the bookstore now and has been for some time about this stuff. So it's not uncommon for band members to have dialogues that they would not have had 30 years ago where they might've had a fist fight to sort <laughs> something out. And now they would have uh, somebody, they, they would talk to somebody or talk to each other that have a big band meeting. God, there's nothing more tense than a big band meeting. <laughs> and, um, and now it turns out, I mean, your next guest is a band therapist. Right. I mean, that's crazy to me, uh, right. but I, I wish, I wish she was around. No, I'm billing um, you, I'm billing you $90 just for the segment anyway. Um, but, um, go pay. <laughs> so, Narissa, I think there's another part of this that I don't want to lose track of, and and feel free to tell me that I'm I've got it all wrong anyway. But I remember when I first showed up to work on this magazine piece, and we had actually a I met four of you at a place called Curtis and Schwartz in Northampton. It's not there anymore. And I, I, we sat there for an hour and a half, and you guys were so funny and completing each other's sentences and telling one each other your dreams, you know, that you'd had the previous night and sharing your pancakes, and. But I was I was aware that there was a huge amount of material that was just not being said because I was there. And and as I look back on that, I think about how a band can also be a refuge. You know, it, it's kind of could it can conceivably be a place where you go because there although there may be stresses, they are very different from the stresses of the rest of the world. And, and maybe a place you go to feel a little bit you know, detached and safe from those outside stresses. Can you t talk about whether that's true or, or ridiculously false? Well, I don't remember. I don't remember there being a lot unsaid to you, Colin. I think that we're very forthcoming, but it is absolutely true that we were, and we are super loyal to each other. And as stressful as touring could be, I remember the interior of our 15 passenger van being like, that was a safe space. That was a space where, you know, we really we really loved each other and we we shared a lot and we also respected each other's silences too. Um and that is part family. I mean, I, those are my family members now, you know. Right. Actually just as a matter of correction, the leader turned out. I think you'd fired your manager that morning. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, that's probably what had happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you told me that after the article came out. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I you know, and, and Jay, maybe chime in here too because I don't want to talk about b bands as these crevasses of deep dysfunction because although they frequently can be that, uh, particularly if you get substances involved. But I would assume also it really is like a family, right? And and tightly knit in the way that maybe families are and few other things are in a comparable way. Uh, yeah. As a married man, I can tell you that I have uh, four other husbands. And um, <laughs> that's just how we roll. We've been through it all. We've been doing this for 20 year, twenty plus years. Um, and we've learned how to work through our problems. And we've also learned how to give each other space when there's no resolution to that problem. Um, and, you know, money helps in all of this. If you're, if you're a, a band and, and uh, you're touring and you're not making money, you know, the, the logistics of that lasting, they shorten by the minute. So even with touring today, like we only do a couple shows a year because it's financially supported. Um, and it's a blast. It's almost like a vacation and seeing these guys is, is almost like a reunion, but that's because we've had to do the work uh, to get back into that place. But 
I consider them family. I consider them like my blood, and I do anything for them. Uh, you said we're talking about getting to do the work to get back into that place. I could see like maybe an eight-hour documentary called "Get Back," uh, uh, just you know about the band, uh, unless somebody has already done that. Uh, I thought the, the documentary was super, that uh, "Get Back" was super telling to the band dynamic, and um, you know just their craft, sense of humor, and the random Hindi in, in the corner and the plates of tea. Like I responded extremely well to all that. All right, so I want to just play one little thing that was given to us uh, by uh, an outside person. This is going to be B1 Cat. Uh, we sort of asked the outside world if they had their stories. Uh, and um, so I'm looking at my document to see who this, who's telling the story. But right now, this is play this clip. This is from Jason Sims from Deep River. Prior to moving to Connecticut, I was in a couple of bands that were fairly locally successful where we were drawing you know, a few hundred people to our shows. One was in Albuquerque and one was in Portland. And in both cases, I was kind of a fan of just going out on top where I felt like we had kind of plateaued and let's just call it quits while we're hot before um, you know people stop coming and everyone gets tired of us. <laughs> so uh, in one case, I uh, had this group, the Metal Shakespeare Company, that um, played the biggest Shakespeare festivals in the country and played colleges and things like that. And uh, after you know six years of wearing Shakespeare tights and uh, doing this, high energy heavy metal show i figured let's do something else so we called it quits and that was 10 years ago uh, and i still get uh, inquiries occasionally of people looking for our albums and stuff so even if your band breaks up it lives on in some way yeah jim i think you worked with metal shakespeare didn't you you i think you auto-tuned uh, much to do about war pigs uh one of their a lot with the the yeah. tights. The tights, yeah. <laughs> I retained. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, but I, there's so much. One thing that I thought was said in the first segment that I think is really interesting, Jim, and I'd I love you to react to it is, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, rock bands, rock and roll bands were new things, and the, our sense of what could or couldn't go wrong with them was underdeveloped. And I do wonder if you think that there's, you know, you can now watch the Beatles for eight hours or how however long Get Back is. But but more than that, we just have all these stories now. Do you think that helps when you have these so-called big band meetings? Well, yeah. I mean, the whole, the, the notion of being in a band, if you're in a band, you love being in a band and you kind of understand what it's like being in a band. Um, and, and I do think now, uh, you know, uh, as a white-haired musician, who still makes his living playing with bands and producing bands and working with bands that um, people soften a little bit when they get older, right? They, you, you become a little more malleable. You a little more understanding. There's a little less of this song has to be on the project. I mean, you, you work all that stuff out because you want to stay together because you want to work with these people. There were, there, you know, Jason was saying about having four husbands. Yeah, I mean, when you're in a band, or or as Narissa said, you're in the van together. I mean, it's. I suppose there are analogs to it that maybe a sports team or something like that, but not quite. It's a, it's a super insider humor that develops from any kind of group like that. There's a, a private language that develops. And all of those things uh, serve to bond you. So I, I think um, I think it's a, a really evolving process. And I remember as a, uh, being in eighth grade drawing pictures of bands. I was in a band and I had to get an electric guitar and would draw electric guitars. It was a whole cultural thing. I think there's a little less of that now. 
although I don't know that for certain. All right. Um, so, yeah. So we're just about to, to wrap this up. Nerissa, I have to ask, there's, you know, now a whole new generation of Neils. Uh, and I'm wondering whether any of them are interested in being in bands. And if so, what you would tell them uh, positively or negatively about just that whole idea of band dynamics. Well, Katrina's and Dave's oldest, Amelia Chalfant, is it has been performing for almost 10 years now. Wow. Believe it or not. Wow really well with their own band Calliope Jones and also as a soloist under the name Wheelsy. So we we don't I, we just take advice from Amelia. <laughs> all right. So we should probably stop there because we have to have time for the therapist. Uh, all of you should listen very, very carefully. I will be billing you. Uh, but thanks very much to this uh, terrific panel here. Uh, Jim Chapdelaine, uh, obviously a regular on our show in all kinds of different capacities. Nerissa Niels and Jay Russell. Uh, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. Thanks to Kat Pastor, as usual, our technical producer here today. Uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, and we we're very excited to have Dan Fleshner uh, produce his first episode with us. Um, we're now going to talk to Heather Ferguson, a psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, and clinical supervisor in New York City, uh, as well as a member of the Music Industry Therapist Collective, providing specialized treatment to artists and musicians, also former band member herself, playing drums in indie rock bands, including the all-metal avant-garde group Homer erotic, which I think may have opened for Metal Shakespeare, uh, at least on one occasion. I still, want to, I still want to see Metal Shakespeare somehow. I'm just like really fascinated by this idea. Uh, so, and I've been also reading Heather your uh, paper in search of bandhood consultation with original music groups. It is fascinating. So, I guess the first thing to maybe say is. A band is kind of not exactly like anything, right? It's not exactly like a family. It's not exactly like a normal workplace either. So I don't know. How do you start thinking about that? It seems as though family is where you start anyway, just to think about interrelationships in a band. I I would agree. I think it's as close to like this idea of a kind of romantic love affair, familial structure and it's complex. And I was playing in bands from 16 on, and then I became a psychotherapist. And I studied analytic group therapy about 20 years ago and looked for research on how to keep a band together and that it didn't quite fit perfectly in any slot, that there's there's an intention for it to be a task group that you have a job to do. So, but there's also, it's a organic creative process if you're writing original music from the ground up and there's all kinds of emotions feelings uh, as you said interrelations there can be boundary crossings it's not like a workplace people become lovers and partners and husbands and ex-husbands and still play together so it's hugely complex which I think makes it super fascinating. 
I think, you know, my sense, and your paper really did help inform my thinking about this, I think another part of it is whatever deficit you've been walking around with in life, you're going to bring it into the room with you when you're in a band, probably, right? I mean, if you had a rotten relationship with your father and now you're a member uh, of the E Street Band, well, then Bruce Springsteen's going to like become your father. You have to work all that stuff out uh, all over again. Can you talk a little bit about that, how, how, how people's pre-existing conditions, so to speak, may affect how they function in a band? Oh, what a great question. You know, it, it, to use fancy psychoanalytic language, we call it transference, where we transfer feelings that are unresolved from the past onto the therapist or a lover or a partner. And of course, the, the emotions and the transferences in a band run wild. And that's why it's so interesting if you get everyone in the room to slow down the action, to take a breath and see who kind of emotionally stands in for who. Really complicated and it could be both conscious in your conscious awareness and unconscious hey dude you're bullying me you know because you're telling me how to play the drums what does that become for that person so that old adage wherever you go there you are we bring our personality our pre-existing conditions our strengths our vulnerabilities to the creative band process I think another thing that came to me through your work also is and, and maybe this is helpful mostly is that there is in bands, not to overexalt them, but there's sort of this sense of higher purpose. I'll give you an example, since you're talking about someone bullying a drummer. Uh, I, I read this story about how uh, during the recording of the Beatles song, Because, you know, which is that incredible sh shimmering set of harmonies, Because the Sky is Blue, um, that they, the three singers, George and Paul and John, went out and sat on a park bench somewhere, and they just worked and worked on those harmonies. And Ringo came and sat with them. He wasn't going to sing, but he just felt, you know, he should support the whole thing. Um, and I you know, in your papers, there's this idea, well, we all love music, so it starts there. You know, there aren't a whole lot of other groups that you can form, kinds of assortments of human beings in workplaces or family where everybody subscribes to one kind of form of idolatry. <laughs> and I'm wondering if, if that's sort of a helpful way of maybe getting past some of the petty stuff. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, idolatry and I would say ideology, right? So Ringo, I, I read a lot about bands kind of interest in the literature and, and sort of personal narrative. And Ringo said something about, I always privilege the music above my drum part, which mm -hmm. is really brilliant. So I think one thing I came to discover, this isn't rocket science, but this idea of a shared purpose, a shared goal that kind of coheres and holds the band together that each member can wrap their head around so that the petty stuff can roll off your back. And I think I, I both was in bands, I was studying analytic group therapy, and I interviewed bands in New York and made a short little documentary with my uh, now husband because I wanted to kind of do what we would say um, a kind of personal narrative, right? And so bands who could say there's a higher purpose, we, we let the petty stuff outside the rehearsal room were the bands that actually stayed together longer. And, and on the other hand, yeah. you know, conflict that's unexpressed can also explode and boil up. So there's that tension, right? When do you need to actually talk about the thing that is bubbling under the surface that you can't kind of morph and into the music? And when do you let the small stuff roll off your back? Right. And so I would, that was the follow-up question I was going to ask is, what's the wolf trap? Where you know, And the wolf trap might be just the stuff that you don't talk about. Although, I don't know if you heard the, the clip, uh, the little thing from the guy from uh, Middle Shakespeare, 
But uh, there was also something very healthy about saying, all right, well, this doesn't have to last forever. We don't, except for the Neils, you know, bands don't produce children together that have to be kind of accounted for and dealt with. (laughs) I mean, there is something about a band where as intense as the relationships are, they are also releasable, you know, in, in in a healthy manner, possibly, right? Yeah, definitely. The band that I was in, we made two records. I was in the band for four years. And uh, there was a point where uh, one of the musicians wanted to go off on her own and do kind of a more pop album. I went with her, but people split off and and had goodwill. Um, And we I don't think we ever had a chance to have a reunion. And I wish we had. But, you know, there are times that people split off. and, And I think it was your wonderful band member panelists were talking about coming back together after some break or doing side projects that some bands like, you know, the uh, radio heads of the world that split off and then come back together for these special, meaningful gigs. Um, I think that there are a lot of ways to work this out. So did Homer Erotic, did you guys like do Iliad and Odyssey material? Was it that kind of Homer <laughs> Well, there, it was started by two incredibly brilliant avant-garde poets. So yes, it was <laughs> it was not doing that material, but playing off that idea of the spoken word <laughs> turned into rock music. <laughs> it was super organic, which made it so lively, but also filled with conflict. Like, is the rhythm driving the band? There were multiple instrumentalists, two singers, two songwriters, a rhythm section filled with African drumming. It was multi-layered. So. Oh, I, I want to go to the reunion tour now. But um, so I only have like thirty-four seconds for you to answer this question, which is not fair. But one thing that I, struck me also is there's so much emphasis on spontaneity and realness in the world of rock bands. And you know, at the age of sixty-eight, one thing I've learned is stuff that I don't say for twenty-four hours while I think about it, you know, is actually can be very helpful. I understand not expressing yourself can be toxic too, but you know, there's this sort of idea you should just see what's on your mind because we're in a rock band and rock and roll is really real. And you know, sometimes just maybe waiting to see if you're still really pissed off twenty-four hours later is kind of helpful. You're going to have to do this pretty fast, Heather. But yeah, I got about thirty seconds for you. No, I mean absolutely right. Is it what youth is wasted on the young? Sort of the wisdom of sort of of sleeping on it right and and deciding tomorrow if it's if it's important to kind of fight out that issue of the bridge of the song um or if someone who you felt snubbed by in the band so i i think that that's right maturation includes learning to decide what's important to talk about and how how you talk about it when i was younger so much younger than today I never needed anybody's help in any way Now, but now these days are gone days and I'm gone. not so self-assured Okay, that's our show. Thanks to everybody who helped, uh, as well as some of the people who hindered. They play a role, too. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow, unless, for some reason, we, we don't show up. Won't you come to the ground?